You're listening to the Ottoman History Podcast. To find out more about today's topic or check out some of our other episodes, along with maps, images, documents, and other materials related to the history of the Ottoman Empire and the modern Middle East, visit us on the web at ottomanhistorypodcast.com. Hello, welcome to the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Nir Shafir. And I'm Reem Beyloni. Today we're speaking with Michael Provence. He is an associate professor of history at the University of California, San Diego. Welcome. Hi there. So Michael is not only my colleague, he's also uh, the former teacher of Reem uh, when she was an undergraduate at UCSD. And now Reem is a professor in her own right. And we're very happy to have her on the podcast as our expert uh, host on the topic. And what we'll be talking about today is really the imperial afterlife of the Ottoman Empire in the 1920s and the 1930s. I think we often think about Ottoman legacies in the Middle East, in the modern Middle East, you know, whether that is the continuation of Vak for the types of intercommunal relations, but we still see kind of the nation state or colonialism as the true modernity uh, in the Middle East as something that's really inevitable and inexorable. Uh, And I think we're going to be looking at kind of different possibilities, different uh, contingent events that could have occurred in the 1920s and 30s. And we're going to look at that through this really interesting topic of Ottoman officers and the education of Ottoman officers and how that created uh, new political possibilities and continu- continuities um, in the post-World War I, War I era. I want to start with this kind of question. You have this new book coming out. What's the title of the book? It's uh, The Last Ottoman Generation and the Making of the Modern Middle East. So this question, The Last Ottoman Generation, and you start this book uh, with this interesting cast of characters. At first, you have the people we kind of might know well from our you know, Orientalist histories, the histories that are very centered on colonial authorities, people like Lawrence of Arabia, uh, people like Kaiser Wilhelm, uh, General Gouraud. But then these are just kind of foils to your actual protagonists, and I think the protagonists here are these Ottoman officers, these people trained in the military academies in the late 19th century and the early 20th century. And I was wondering, you know, why did you choose these people as your protagonists? Well, 15 years ago, I was living in Damascus and I started reading memoirs and, mm-hmm. and accounts of, of the great Syrian revolt. And I, I noticed that everybody, or not everybody, but many, many people seem to be educated in these in something that was called a military school uh the the uh the maktab al-askari and from ottoman from late ottoman historiography in damascus this was unknown nobody knew about it and it happened that i was living i had a roommate who then wrote a big big book about ottoman late ottoman damascus and his name is stefan weber and he he was he had been working at the german institute he he'd he'd plotted Damascus right. uh, carefully. Yeah, it's an amazing book. It's, it's a uh, it's a great book. It's a you know I think the most important architectural work on Damascus probably ever. And I said, Stefan, what is this school? And he said, Oh, that's right down in Merge Square. It's right across the street from from uh, Merge, which is where I ate my lunch almost mm-hmm. every day. And uh, so there was this 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 late Ottoman uh, infrastructural uh, project that was there that I was walking past every day and lots of people were walking past every day and all of the people who were central to the revolt, not central to nationalist historiography because those were people who were writing things later, but central to the revolt, the Syrian uh, revolt, the Syrian revolt passed through this school that was unknown from a historiographical standpoint. And so that, that became something really interesting. And then I started thinking about about the influence of these schools, and I found out that there was not just one school, but there was a system of schools. Mm-hmm. There were dozens of of, uh, of state military high schools all over the Ottoman Empire, in 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 uh, Tripoli, in Libya, in all over Anatolia, in the Balkans, uh-huh. and it turns out that everybody we we think of, including uh, Mustafa Kemal himself, were uh, were subsidized students in these schools. Hmm. And and that there were thousands of people, of young men, mostly of modest background, uh, who went to these schools. They were fully subsidized. Nobody had to pay. And uh, and that they 
created a kind of a formative generation of, of late Ottoman and post-Ottoman uh, statesmen who also were sometimes advocates of, of fairly militaristic understandings of, of, uh, of, the, of the ideal society. And that kind of got me started. These are military schools, right? They're not the civil educational uh, secondary schools that we, we might think of when we think of like late Ottoman education. Uh, so how were they actually different from, uh, from these more normal civil schools? It's a good question. So it, it seems to me, and I mean, I've, since that time, I've talked with people like, uh, like uh, Akshin Somal who, mm-hmm. and Ben Fortna, uh, who wrote important books about Ottoman education. It's, there seems to have been two systems, a civil system and the military system. And the civil system uh, educated people like Shakib Arslan and uh, people like uh, Satel Husri. So these are kind of the formative... Uh, some of the formative figures of intellectual, intellectual figures, figures yeah. of uh, Arab nationalism, and others too, like uh, like uh, Musa Kazim al Husseini in Jerusalem, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, but and those schools were based on the model of the of the uh, they were called Sultani schools. Mm-hmm. They were based on the model of the Galatasaray Lycee uh, in in Istanbul, and so there was Maktab Anbar in Damascus. There was the Sultani school in Beirut, still exists. And it's still a school, um, and and so, but though these were, those schools were expensive, and they educated uh, boys who were already from prominent families. Mm. So the military schools were subsidized, and they were free. No one paid tuition. The uniforms were provided. The the books were provided, and boarding was provided. So those schools and that system uh, educated an entirely different class of late Ottoman. Uh, elites and statesmen uh, than the schools that we know about from most of the things that were sort of the canons mm-hmm. of uh, Arab nationalist historiography. Uh, so the fact that these schools were both subsidized and provided boarding actually allowed, in a sense, a much broader group of people to come to the schools, including, I presume, rural people, you know, who were, no, were not uh, necessarily in the city or were from smaller towns, Right. Right. I mean, there was probably a policy of recruiting people or, or, you know, trying to convince rural people, especially in perennially rebellious areas like, like say, uh, Jabal Hauran uh, or parts of Iraq, mm-hmm. uh, to, to that, that, the, that their children could benefit from state education and to draw these people into the, into the state. Um, you know, this is something that we know about from from the work of other scholars uh, like Salim Deringil, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was a policy. It, it was, in a way, a social engineering project as well, probably. And this modernizing logic of reforming the military and including um, rural populations was something common to many of these empires during the 19th century, not just the Ottoman Empire. It seems that that if we if we look at I mean there's the exception of say the British Empire, uh, but if we look at and in some ways it may not be an exception at all. But if we look at at the modernizing states in the 19th century, and even the United States, the idea of of recruiting uh, lower middle class young men for mili- to become military officers is mm-hmm. commonplace, and and it's it's sort of this is where the military cadres come from. Uh, so the Ottoman Empire fits within this this uh, this basic model exactly, uh, and this is you know these these young men they kind of they they they're given everything by the state they become the vanguard of the state the defenders of the state uh, and and uh, and the people who in times of crisis may even uh, reserve the right to define what the state means and mm. and uh, and in the t- period of, of the First World War, to define a quite militaristic vision of, of authoritarian modernity, mm-hmm. which is something that we find in, in Europe, in, throughout European history, late, late uh, 19th and early 20th century European history as well, of course. Uh, so, so far you've kind of described this world in which you have kind of an elite privileged uh, education of the civil institutions in which students had to pay for it. And then you had a subsidized 
uh, military school education that was pulling in a much wider uh, set of students from rural uh, and often kind of rebellious uh, Arab provinces. But I was wondering, in this set of students, you know, are is this just Muslim students? Uh, where are the non-Muslims uh, in the empire who, are, you know, still at this time uh, were a plurality or maybe a majority of the inhabitants? Mm-hmm. Well, the civil schools, uh, like the Galatasaray Lisey, of course, uh, educated a lot of non-Muslim students. Mm-hmm. Um, and the military schools, based on on looking at cadet books, uh, there were probably some non-Muslim students who, who attended. It was the case during the war that, uh, uh, that non-Muslim students became Ottoman officers, sometimes reserve officers, especially in the, in the medical corps. Mm-hmm. So, you know, armies recruit, they, they conscript doctors during wartime. And a lot of Ottoman doctors were were Greeks or Armenians or, or from one of the various Christian rites. So those people became reserve officers in the medical corps. I see. But there were also Christians who were we we we. I mean, I, I there there were certainly at least a few examples of Christian uh, officers within the actual uh, military itself. Uh, as far as conscription of of uh, of of ranking soldiers, of, of common soldiers. Right, because this is also um, the era of universal conscription exactly. and the rise of militaries through that process. That's right. So there's there's universal, there's theoretical universal conscription. And uh, the Ottoman army, um, there's discussions of conscripting everybody, mm-hmm. but there's a lot of opposition on the part of the non-Muslim uh, populations. They don't want to be conscripted. And uh, sometimes the army doesn't want them either, but during the time of the war, uh, everybody's getting conscripted. A lot of times, uh, non-Muslims are being uh, put in special brigades for work crews and things like that. They may not be serving on the front line, and they may not be armed. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but uh, so you know, there's there's a conscription is is by that time truly universal, and Christians and and non-Muslims are are conscripted as well. But a very different kind of uh, distribution of people across uh, the military ranks and in the education system and so forth. I mean, I think that that we can say that that the the Ottoman Empire, the late Ottoman Empire, was a was an Islamic empire. It was right. a it was a in in common with other modernizing states, uh, which is often forgotten. I mean, you know, the British Empire has a state religion actually, mm-hmm. and and the the sovereign is the is the the. The head of the church. The head of the church, yeah. and and officers, you know, uh, in the British military, swear an oath to the church and to God, and it's not, you know, it's not a, it's a Christian God, right? So the Ottoman the Ottoman Empire is is similar in this way. There is a state religion, and and the the military and the people who consider themselves the vanguard of the state, its defender, uh, and the defender of its sultan and its caliph. Are mostly Muslims, mm-hmm. and it it it's a self it's identified by those people as a as a Muslim uh, state, a Muslim state which which in their conception also is besieged by hostile Christian states, which right. are also overtly uh, identified as Christian states mm-hmm. in their conception as well. So you know it's 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 not the 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 view of of 1900 is not the same as the view of of, of say 2016. Right. Of of, uh, of state identity. Yeah, and I think it's an important point to keep in mind uh, that I think as you've pointed out in in the case of conscription and military education and so forth, that this is a part of pro- uh, a set of processes and imperial strategies that are being followed by powers, whether, you know, the Habsburgs or the Austro-Hungarians uh, or England or Russia and so forth. That's right. You know, we've talked about their education, about the institution of the military and universal conscription in the late Ottoman Empire. But your book really focuses on uh, the experience of World War One and the aftermath of World War One, the 1920s and 30s. And so can you just inform us as to what happens to these officers uh, during the Great War uh, and afterwards? Well, of course, I mean, if, if we if we pay attention to um, if we watch David Lean's movie, you know, the, the Lawrence Arabia, oh, okay, yeah. they all all the all the Arab officers, you know, they all quit. And uh, go to fight uh, with with uh, with uh, with Faisal and with Lawrence of Arabia, but this actually is not at all the case. So 
1914, probably 50% of the Ottoman military were people who didn't come from Anatolia. Mm -hmm. They were Greek-speaking Muslims, they were Bulgarians, they were Arabs, they were from all over the place. So because they were officers, they were loyal to the institution, and they were educated in the institution. So for the defeat of the state, and it was a disaster, a disaster of unimaginable personal and professional uh, scope. Mm -hmm. They didn't have a, an army or an empire left to serve. So a lot of people um, ended up fighting with, no matter where they, their origin, they ended up fighting with the, with, uh, the, in the Anatolian insurgency with Kamal, if they could get there. Right. And other people couldn't get there, and they ended up in other places. And some of them were old, and they retired and went to their villages or whatever. Of course, a lot of these people were wanted by the Allies, too. They might have been, they might have been uh, on the run. So, Can all, you maybe give us just an example, a short life story of one of these officers? Sure. So the, the person who the, the book sort of ended up being about in, a more, in, in the most central way was Yassin al-Hashimi, who was... Um, a very, very distinguished officer, uh, and ended the war on the Palestine front um, as a major general mm-hmm. in command of, I think, the 4th Army. Mustafa Kamal was there as well. He was also a major general. He was in charge of, I think, the 7th Army. I could have them mixed up. Uh, so he was he was equal in rank to Mustafa Kamal. But Yassin was wounded on his way uh, on the, north, the northern retreat uh, outside Dara. And he fled and hid in Damascus. And so when some of the Hashemite, uh, the, the, the few soldiers, the few officers who had joined Faisal, uh, found that this very distinguished officer was in hiding, wounded in Damascus, they went to him. They found him. And they said, join us. Well, he didn't have any options. He was unemployed. He had uh-huh. a family to feed. Uh, and he was wounded. And, you know, so, and he couldn't get to Anatolia. Uh, and so he he became the chief of staff of Faisal's uh, uh, young young state in Damascus in, at the end of 1918. So Yasin al-Hashimi is a is a is an emblematic character, but he's also well he's he's an exemplar because of his his extremely uh, distinguished record. He mm-hmm. finished the war really as a hero, uh, and and uh, he'd been at the top of the class in all of his educational endeavors and stuff like that. And he came from a very modest background in Baghdad. In what ways um, did Ottoman, did the Ottoman military education, but also institutions and infrastructure shape this common culture that continues to inspire a lot of these figures in the post in the post World War One era, but also importantly in the ways in which it um, gave them a perspective that helped them or that inspired them to challenge the colonial framework of the mandates Mm. yeah that's a important question i mean the there's there's two divisions within the ottoman officer corps the maktabla officers who are trained in the schools and go through a 15-year acculturation process and are literate literate and cultured in two three languages and then the the ranking officers who go through the the ranks and and are professional soldiers but maybe illiterate. So the 1908 revolution is really the work of the of the second the first group the Mektabla officers who essentially take control of the state mm-hmm. and and they're unionists and people like Yassin al Hashimi and others uh, who are Arabs or Bulgarians or whatever they remain unionists and they remain people who believe in a militarized, authoritarian, statist uh, uh, society. And, and Ataturk, of course, fits within this, this, this mold precisely. Right. Uh, so they don't, they don't deviate from that. They're not Democrats. And they don't willingly hand over power uh, to, um, to uh, uh, civilian products of the intellectual products of the, of the civil schools. And they also have fought the British and the French as mortal enemies on the battlefields of the First World War. So they're not, they're not people who are going to be writing petitions and saying, well, if we just put it in the right language, they'll give us our rights. So they're much more comfortable and much more committed to 
a process of seizing the what they define as their national rights through force of arms. And in Anatolia, of course, this is successful. But it also happens everywhere else, mm-hmm. and it's unsuccessful. But it's the same impetus and the same culture and the same idea, and in their conception, I would argue, the same struggle, actually. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, from from uh, Iraq in 1920 to Anatolia uh, in the following years, and then Syria and Palestine, and so on. And they were responsible for a lot of revolts during the post-war era. So my question to you is, were these revolts about nationalism? Well, of course they were about nationalism, but uh, the nationalism is, is, uh, is not defined in a systematic way because they're not intellectuals. I mean, they are intellectuals in a way. Some of them, people like Yusuf Lazme, the great hero of Syrian uh, independence, who actually, you know, was acculturated as kind of a Turk, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he wrote books uh, in German, or he translated books from German to, to Ottoman. Uh, so he was an intellectual in his own right. They were military books, but he did it. But in terms of of being theoreticians of, of nationalist identity, they were not interested, most of these people. Mm-hmm. They were interested in governing and building societies uh, that would be uh, anti-imperialist societies, uh, independent societies, societies free from the 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 fetters of the colonial empires that they believed rightly i think had strangled uh and extinguished the ottoman state uh which they didn't forgive and and uh and i think they as a generation as a group i think they all lamented it to the end of their days uh that strangling the end of the state that they had been trained had been acculturated had grown up uh envisioning themselves as the servants and maybe the saviors of this, uh, this last great uh, Muslim state. I think this is a really fascinating portrait of the Middle East in the 1920s and 30s that you're painting here. You know, often, at least I don't think of Anatolia and the independent struggle there uh, in the same kind of sphere as the kind of anti-colonial uh, fights in Syria or in Iraq um, or elsewhere uh, during the 1920s. Uh, and I think it's interesting how you kind of bring them together so I guess it was, for me, it's inter- why is it that the Anatolia was successful, but, you know, Syria was not? Yeah, that's a good question, too. I mean, I, I, um, I want to I see what, what Reem has to say about this, too, because she has uh, thoughts about this as mm-hmm. well, based on her own work. Um, so, I mean, there's very, in a way, there's, there's really very concrete reasons uh the armistice line is the syrian turkish border today right and the armistice line is the train line uh that was uh that went almost all the way to mosul so this is not an accident this is the last line of defense that the ottoman army intended to to defend uh at the time of the armistice now the ottoman army was not demobilized in anatolia uh, so that's not inconsequential. And the place that was most, uh, that actually was a field of battle and was most uh, intensively occupied by the Allies was, of course, what became the Palestine Mandate. And that's not an accident either. So Syria was somewhat less intensively occupied, first by the British by the, than by the French. And so mm-hmm. the revolt there was, you know, was, was, was more destructive uh, closer to successful, to succeeding, I would say, in ex- in, in expelling the French. Uh, and the revolt in, in Iraq in 1920 was also quite close to, to, uh, to succeeding in expelling the British. But Iraq was strategically important uh, for petroleum and, and other things, and the British were very committed uh, not to giving it up. But they were, there was some success in Cilicia, right? Well, Cilicia is, is one of the places where the Anatolian uh, insurgency got its start, actually. Right. So, so there was a, I mean, another thing that happened is that the British and the French, we can say, but especially the British, um, envisioned the post-war situation as, as in requiring um, proxy uh, client states that they would be able to occupy cheaply. So in a way, the Hashemites can be seen this way. Uh, um, uh, Armenian, the Armenian Legion in Cilicia right. can be seen this way. Uh, Zionism can be seen this way. Uh, greater Libya or Greater Lebanon can be seen this way. It's kind of a, 
the the appointment of a of a of a colonial proxy group that will cheapen that will make the cost of, of colonial domination a little bit less uh, less intensive for the for the um, for the for the the great power. Mm-hmm. So that's I mean that's a pretty it's a pretty unappealing way to think of it. Uh, but certainly, this is something that was going through the minds of a British British and French official thinkers. They were trying to figure out a way to keep these things that they thought they had won in the war in a way that wouldn't cause revolution at home. Mm-hmm. Right. So one thing I'd like to talk about then building off of that is the central problems of the mandate system. Um, or one of the central problems of the mandate system was its inherent ambiguity. How did Ottoman Arabs or former Ottoman Arabs um, and the Mandates Commission itself, for example, plus the mandate powers, um, wrestle with this, um, or perhaps it was intended to be ambiguous. Um, And also one thing that stands out is, you know, both the British and the French uh, approach the mandate system as well as the League of Nations um, differently. Um, In what ways did they use specific legal and or cultural understandings or strategies to justify their colonial endeavors in an era where that was ostensibly about um, sovereign nation states. Right, right. Well, I mean, you've you've looked at this material more recently than I have, I think, in, in the League of Nations, in the archive in Geneva, and also in Nantes. And, I mean, it seems... I think that in a way we can imagine or we can envision the the League of Nations almost as an Anglo-American project. The Americans kind of backed off, but Wilson was involved. Uh, And so the British were, you know, I think um, on an official level, they were quite comfortable with this. Mm -hmm. It didn't didn't cause them any kind of uh, existential angst. Uh, They knew that they could manipulate it. They knew that they could get what they wanted. Uh, mm-hmm. And that they could use the League of Nations to deliver this kind of veneer of 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 humanitarian legitimacy to their their imperial project. And I think the French, I mean, French documents are they're a lot spottier in a way, aren't they? And and um, and there's a sort of a sense of of, uh, of insecurity about whether or not France can make the mandate. And the League of Nations regime work for uh, the achievement of, of imperial goals and colonial goals, and also this mm-hmm. kind of feeling all the time that if we're not careful, the British are going to cheat us because that's what they do. Right. Uh, so that's in there. I mean, so there's a there's there's a tremendous amount of ambiguity. Reem, what has your research uh, uncovered? Well, I think one interesting um, aspect to all of this is the ways in which. A lot of these figures, Ottoman, uh, Ottoman military as well as civil civilian pol- politicians, responded to um, the League of Nations as an organizing framework for the international uh, system in the post-war era, mm-hmm. um, and the ways in which you know, as Michael Provence points out, the ways in which you know the civilian politicians feel as though. By petitioning the League of Nations, by petitioning the Mandates Commission, by insisting on a political route, they can somehow insert themselves within that world of international figures and international politicians. And by making themselves international, they can gain legitimacy somehow in this nation-state framework. Um, Whereas those fighting the rebellions in Syria, in Iraq, in Palestine... Um, feel as though they have to seize their place within that system, that post-war system, by force. Um, But I don't think those two are mutually exclusive. And in fact, I mean, as I think both of our research has shown, um, Sultan Pasha Atrash, for example, relied on Shakib Arslan. Sorry, can you just Sultan Pasha Atrash being um, the man who led the Syrian revolt of 1925, relied on Shakib Arslan to um, be the international voice of the rebellion in yeah. some ways. So Shakib Arslan, he was an officer previously. Well, no, Shakib was a was a um, he's a, a Druze Amir actually, uh, a uh, and and the grand the grandfather of uh, of Walid Jumblat, uh, and and uh, so he was educated in the Ottoman civil system, 
and he became the he called himself the Mujahid al-Sharq fil Garb, right? Uh, um, so he 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 uh, he wasn't he was a, a guy who was fighting with his pen, right? Uh, but he from exile and from exile Berlin, in Geneva and Geneva. So and you know endlessly uh, devoted, I guess, wouldn't you say? Uh, to the idea that that the pen maybe not mightier than the sword but at least you know at least formidable so far we've looked at the lives of these uh, ottoman trained officers after world war 1 as they're struggling in the 1920s and 30s and you know we've seen the differences between let's say what happened in anatolia with the republic of turkey and the kind of failed rebellions um in syria and iraq and elsewhere and I'm one question that comes to mind for me is just you know why why is it that these men stuck with the Ottoman system and when did if when did they turn against it when did they for instance try to attach themselves to Arab nationalist movements or other types of movements um, and if so why well I think that in some ways they they might have said that they hadn't abandoned Ottomanism or the Ottoman Empire but that the Ottoman Empire had abandoned them or had so it the the right. possibility was foreclosed, and so they they right. they're sort not of, fighting for an empire, but they're fighting for these nation states that they can focus fighting on. for some sort of uh, you know moderately positive outcome mm-hmm. uh, from the the from the the settlement. So I mean, in the period that I, I think Reem probably found some of these documents too in the nineteen twenty five the period of the nineteen twenty five revolt, people were saying in their in their uh, petitions they said they would say things like well all we want is something like what they're having in Iraq cuz that this is really i mean this is intolerable here in Syria and Iraq looks quite better from our perspective even though you know it wasn't really a mandate they had a monarchy and and the government the british government was was still in charge but it was it was more nominal independence so people's people's aspirations i think changed over time based on what they thought was achievable um and and by the late 20s that that uh you know the the expectations had moderated substantially is there any example of a particular officer that comes to mind uh that can elucidate this well i mean yasin yasin to go back to yasin is always he's he, he really became the the principal protagonist and he's from, from my perspective he's very interesting because so in 19 19- 19 and 1920 he's trying to convince king faisal or amir faisal in damascus that he has to fight the british mm-hmm. and and faisal says no i mean i can't do that i and of course faisal is a is a, a creature of the british i mean right. he's a kind of a british client so the idea that that uh, that his that these ottoman officers who had remained in the ottoman service were going to lead a, a armed resistance with faisal at its head he didn't he rejected it and they were frustrated and they they came to kind of oppose him in a way uh and then after the french invasion of damascus of syria and the occupation of the country they they he had to split he had to flee uh and he fled um and he went to he went to Anatolia, and he went uh, to uh, to Kamal and said, "I'm back. I want to re-enter Ottoman service. I want to join the army. I want to rejoin the army." And Kamal said, "No, you can't. You've waited too long." Now, this was also the time when Kamal was busily purging officers who were potential rivals for power of the Turkish Republican movement mm-hmm. in Anatolia. So he didn't want. This guy who was just as dignif- just as distinguished, just as as uh, as decorated, just as heroic as him, uh, coming back and saying, "Yeah, okay, I'm here. I'm ready. I'm <laughs> I'm, I'm reporting for duty." Uh, so the the fabricated explanation here was, "Sorry, you waited too long." Mm-hmm. So uh, Yassin goes to to uh, he asks Faisal, "Can I come to Iraq?" Uh, Faisal is now the king of Iraq, and Faisal says, "No, we don't want you." So he's he's a, a major general. He's got a family of three children and a wife. He can't support himself. He has no prospects. Uh, nobody will employ him. And finally, in 1921, Faisal says, "You can come back if you agree to be the 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 mutasarif of this rebellious, miserable, 
a desert province that we can't govern. And he comes, and he takes a job, and he says, isn't there anything else I could do? And Faisal says, this is it, take it. (laughs) And he takes it, and he's successful. And he suppresses the tribal revolt in this desert province, and within five years, he's the prime minister. Uh, and and so he's he's uh, he's he's come back from from uh, from complete obscurity obscurity to... and defeat to be the most important statesman and according to the British the most formidable mm-hmm. most dangerous most intelligent uh, politician uh, in in Iraq so this is a, and of course the kind of state that he envisions is very similar to the state that that Kamal is creating uh, in in Anatolia. So we'll be right back. We're going to take a quick musical break uh, and then we'll return to the podcast. Welcome back to the Autumn History Podcast. I'm Nir Shafir and I'm with Reem Looney. We're speaking with uh, Michael Provence about the imperial afterlife um, of the Ottoman Empire and specifically the officers that were trained in the military schools. And so far, you know, we've traced them from their education uh, through their experiences in World War I and in the rebellions that uh, followed in the Arab colonies uh, and mandates uh, in in the 1920s and 30s. Uh, and now we're really kind of, I think we're going to explore this kind of post-colonial life uh, of these Arab officers. Thanks, Nir. Um, one thing that I was struck by was the central role of power and violence um, to this story. The colonial powers clearly took advantage of their unequal power dynamic with their Arab interlocutors. Um, but as you point out, all parties were profoundly shaped by the late 19th century reforms and the central place of modernizing military and warfare. And as such, Ottoman military men, um, too, were convinced that force was um, was the way to achieve sovereignty and independence um, in the post-war era. Um, and this, of course, uh, produces a mixed legacy of authoritarianism and heavy-handed rule in the post-colonial period. So I was wondering if you could speak about this a little bit and also what happens to liberalism and ideas about representative democracy and so on? Well, I mean, I think that, that uh, as, as you've shown in your work too, Reem, it the mandates debase liberalism. Uh, the mandates discredit liberalism. Uh, the mandates, because of their, their uh, liberal facades, shrouding uh, uh, militarized counterinsurgency, uh, mass executions, uh, airstrikes, uh, the destruction of towns and villages all over the mandatory uh, 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 regions, um, martial law, uh, authoritarian executives in the in the in the person of high commissioners who can do anything they want to anybody they want at any time they want. Uh, all of this discredits the civilian population, the c- civilian politicians uh, who try unsuccessfully, to write constitutions, to rule uh, in c- what Philip Hurry called honorable co- cooperation mm-hmm. uh, with the mandatory authorities. And so when independence finally comes, not because anybody wins it and not because anybody gives it, but simply because the colonial powers, the British and the French are exhausted and broke and have to leave, uh, and the the colonial uh, nationalist elite are in power simply because they outlasted the British and French uh, mandate governments. Um, the legacy is is terrible, and the population has the expectation that civilian politicians are compromised, probably corrupt, can't deliver anything, and that the institutions of state are all uh, farcical 
and not genuine. Hmm. And so in every way, in every location, this is the, the legacy of the mandates. And this is the, the stage, this is the setting of the stage for the, the reassertion of, of strong military leaders who say, we will, uh, will fix this, we will deal with this. And so in, in a very direct way, this is the lesson of the mandates themselves. I think that's really fascinating. What you've really sketched out here is a kind of almost a century of leaders trained in these military schools who are trained with a certain conception of politics and violence, uh, a capacity to kind of seize the structures and mechanisms of the state. Uh, and you see that kind of, I mean, all the way into the 1980s and 90s, really, uh, in the Middle East. Um, but it seems, from what I understand, or at least my kind of weak knowledge of 20th century Middle Eastern history, it's not necessarily the original Ottoman officers that are seizing power in the Arab republics in the 1950s and 60s. So I was wondering, you know, how do they reproduce this military-educated uh, class? Like, why is it that there's this pattern again and again? Uh, why is it that the armies are kind of constantly creating these lower-middle-class provincial uh, officers, whether in Iraq or Syria or elsewhere, uh, that are keep rising to power? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I would say that the generation, the last Ottoman generation is not, I mean, they were, like I said, I think unionists in a mm-hmm. way. Uh, and um, they didn't, uh, they had a, 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 an expansive view of the state, a, a, a 1920s and 30s view of the state, as a deliverer uh, of of social goods and uh, and benefits for the population, and so I mean, you know, there was a lot of developmental discussion, mm-hmm. uh, import substitution, uh, big education projects, um, infrastructural projects, and things like that. And so I think that the late Ottoman project is is less uh, authoritarian and militaristic than what came later. Mm. Um, but I think that the that the the late Ottoman military uh, education project, coupled with the the debasement of political culture during right. the mandate, uh, under the under the control of the of the mandatory governments, and the League of Nations, the League of Nations played a central role in in continually fostering fake democratic and pluralist institutions that didn't deliver anything for anybody except for legitimacy for the mandatory government at home in Europe, uh, that these things together uh, set the stage for the post-colonial disappointments, I would say. Uh, that, that the argument that, that there was a civilian alternative, that, uh, that the state could be, uh, could be properly managed and run uh, by civilians and by civilian politicians, I think was was destroyed uh, by the mandates uh, everywhere. Mm. And this this is 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 the I think the central legacy of the mandatory governments. I think that's fascinating because uh, to some degree, some of the scholarship kind of focusing on the history of the League of Nations, the history of the mandates, is about these kind of budding democratic institutions, the capacity of an international sphere to develop a possibility for liberalism. But, you know, here you're really uh, inverting the story in a sense. Right. No, well, I mean, it seems to me that, that institutions have to, be, have to be judged by their, by their results. Right. And so um, when a constitution is written in a way to please uh, editorial writers in Geneva, as opposed to written to deliver rights and benefits and... and uh, and participation to populations in Syria, for example, um, the results are rather predictable, probably. And I think that we should remember, or it seems to me anyway, that none of these things were created, none of these institutions of the colonial state were, were created to deliver any kind of, of, of representation or uh, democratic rule to the people who actually lived in the places. They were devised to deny them those things. And to make that denial plausible, palatable, and 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 rational from the perspective of people who wanted to deny them anyway. Mm-hmm. Welcome back. 
I'm Nir Shafir. I'm with Reem Beiluni. We're speaking to Michael Provence about the post-imperial life of Ottoman military officers. So far, you know, we've talked a lot in about in this discussion about the Arab provinces, about the Arab officers in the Ottoman army. Uh, but I was wondering, kind of, what was going on in the counterexample of the Balkans? You know, here's also a place that you mentioned has these military schools that is recruiting the same amount of people, slightly different uh, ethnic configuration, uh, not under the mandates. You know, do the same dynamics uh, that we see in Anatolia and the Arab provinces uh, occur in the Balkans uh, over the course of, you know, the 1920s and 30s? They do. I mean, um, of course, Mustafa Kemal himself is from the Balkans. Right. Uh, And so... uh, Ex-Ottoman Muslim military officers inevitably became pensioners of the Turkish Republican Army. That's mm-hmm. the first thing. Uh, as far as the civil uh, education system and Galata Sarayidise and and uh, other uh, civil schools, many of the statesmen of the the first couple of generations of political leaders in most of the Balkan countries were products of those schools. Hmm. Uh, so, according to Tom Gallant, uh, our colleague uh, at UCSD, who's a historian of, the, of modern Greece, so the educational uh, legacy of the Ottoman Empire was broad. But for an Ottoman officer, uh, regardless of what's, what one's uh, mother tongue was or place of origin, uh, serving in the military of the, of the Turkish Republican Army and, and collecting a pension and living out your years in Istanbul was the best option of, of, of people who sometimes didn't have many options. Mm. So probably something like, according to Mesut Oyar, who's a, a historian of the Ottoman military um, and a former Turkish military officer himself, uh, something like 30 or 40 percent of the pensioners of the Turkish Republican Army uh, who had lived through the period had their origins outside Anatolia. Mm-hmm. So the Republic of Turkey actually is made up of people who were refugees, uh, right. Muslim refugees from all over the place. It's an immigrant country, it's just an, like... It's an immigrant... It is an immigrant country. And and the so there's Cretan uh, Muslims and, and people from the Caucasus and right. all over the place. And many, many of the people uh, who... Many of the Ottoman Arab officers uh, ended up so to speak, becoming Turks right? Uh, in the period of 1920 and 1930. Mm-hmm. So far, we've had a really fascinating conversation, and I kind of wanted to end it on this question, uh, which is a very presentist question, which is probably a question that's on the minds of some of our listeners, which is this question of similarities between the period that you're studying uh, and any insights it gives us on the Middle East today. Because, you know, so much of what you're looking at is kind of the construction of a certain uh, Ottoman infrastructure, whether educational or transportational, um, and its total breakdown and purposeful destruction following World War One, and then in the mandates, um, and how people attempted to cope with that. How did wh- where did they choose to go, and what did they choose to do? And really, kind of the system that emerged um, after 1920 and 30, you know, continued until let's say the 1980s and 90s, the, with the end of the Cold War, and now we're witnessing a, a second a total breakdown, uh, massive wars, um, revolutions of different varieties, counter-revolutions. And I was wondering, you know, does your research give us any insight, uh, even maybe existential insight, uh, into this period? Well, it's, it's, I think so in a way. I mean, the, the one thing that one can come away with is that things fall apart and people are never prepared. Hmm. Um, Things collapse, and I, I like the way you put it. The the the, the breakdown and uh, and willful destruction, I think, of the Ottoman state. So the people who were trained in this system, whether they were physicians or lawyers or or, or university professors or military officers, or tax collectors or or employees of the cadastral survey or whatever, were not prepared for the collapse of the state, and. It didn't pay pensions anymore. Uh, it didn't offer employment to anyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you were, for example, a an Ottoman-trained physician in in uh, Baghdad or in Yemen or 
in Jerusalem who had not been trained in Arabic as a physician, you might not be able to work as a physician. Uh, and so we're seeing today a kind of another generation of people in the Middle East who are confronted with the same kind of cataclysm that the institutions of the state are, are not functioning, especially in Syria. And people who were trained as, mili- as, uh, as uh, university professors or mm-hmm. physicians or, or uh, people with a lot of education are refugees and, and struggling to, to subsist, to eat even. And so this is in a way very similar to the situation of, for, for lots and lots of people who expected to send, spend their lives serving the Ottoman state, mm-hmm. working in a government office, doing meaningful work, uh, and retiring, and and those possibilities were 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 destroyed, were ended. So, um, and they weren't, as I say, they weren't prepared, and no one expected it. And and uh, and the post facto historical gaze that imagines that these kinds of collapses are inevitable, I think, is something that we have to we have to um, resist right. as historians because it wasn't the way people experienced it at the time and it's not the way people are experiencing it now. And yeah, and I think your research kind of does a great job of pulling out these contingencies um, and the sense of expectation uh, that people had felt uh, being part of this Ottoman system. But I think to, and maybe on a more positive note, is Thank that um, they did adapt um, to these changes Right, so um, a figure like Shakib Arslan, you know, went from being an Ottomanist to an Islamic nationalist, or perhaps Arab nationalist, and you know, followed you know the trail, went went where uh, he could find a living and and make meaning um, out of the situation That's that right. he found himself in. So they were resilient and they made meaning for life, even even when everything seemed to be dissolving beneath them so on that note uh, we hope our listeners have enjoyed uh, this very intriguing and interesting conversation that we've had with Michael Provence so Michael thank you again for coming on the podcast thank you Nir and thank you Reem thanks Michael it's been a pleasure Uh, for those listeners that want to know more first of all I suggest that you uh, look at Michael's forthcoming book what was the title of again Uh, The Last Ottoman Generation and the Making of the Modern Middle East and you can also come to our website where Michael has graciously um, provided a few references for your perusal. Um, once again, come to our Facebook group where you'll find other like-minded listeners. Uh, please comment on the posts, um, comment on our content. We want your interaction and we hope that you tune again uh, next time for another episode. Thank you. Thank you.